Today is the second Sunday in Advent, and I mentioned last week that during these weeks of preparation for celebrating the birth of Christ, I would be sharing uh, some passages of Scripture that we might not typically think of as Advent Scriptures, but they're Old Testament prophecies that talk about the coming Messiah. So today in this series that's called Unto Us, we're going to be looking at a story from the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and see how the story of the first Passover uh, parallels the story of Jesus in the New Testament. And the message in both stories is that God, in God's plan of salvation, uh, there would be a sacrificial lamb. And ultimately, this is a story for us and about us. We are the recipients of God's salvation uh, if we receive God's gift by faith. And that is our goal, to help each of us come to that place in time where we receive the gift by faith into our own life. Let's pray together, shall we? God, we come into this place this morning seeking light, light to reveal your majesty, light to clear our blindness, light to illumine our understanding. So come into our hearts and lives anew as we worship you so that we may serve in your kingdom as bearers of your light and guide others to your truth, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Christians everywhere recognize the lamb as a familiar biblical image. It's often connected with both Christmas and Easter. Though lambs aren't specifically mentioned in the Christmas story, they are implied by the presence of the shepherds and also by the fact that Jesus was born in a stable. So even though the word lamb is not used in connection with Jesus' birth, we know there must have been many flocks in the area around Bethlehem. The Bible makes the connection between Jesus and lambs in several different passages. In Isaiah chapter 53, compares the Messiah to a lamb going to be slaughtered. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. Paul called Christ the Passover lamb. Peter spoke of Christ's blood as the blood of the Lamb, and finally, the book of Revelation explicitly calls Christ the Lamb some 30 times. Our emotional connection for the word Lamb is entirely positive. Words such as gentle and helpless, friendly, innocent come to mind. But in order to understand the biblical picture of Jesus as the Passover Lamb, we need to leave this modern world and journey back in time some 35 centuries to the land of Egypt. There we discover that God's people are being held as slaves by the Egyptians. For 400 years, the Jews lived in harsh and difficult conditions, and for generations, their labor had been exploited by some very cruel taskmasters. Finally, God raises up a leader, and his name is Moses, who goes before the Egyptian Pharaoh with a message from God, and that message was, let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't take it seriously, so Moses comes back several times with the same message from God, but Pharaoh has no intention of letting this group of slaves go. After all, this is a wonderful workforce in building a great empire. So God devises a plan that will cause Pharaoh to beg the Jews to leave his land. He sends a series of terrible judgments called plagues on Egypt, and each one represents a terrible natural disaster, and each one shows God's complete power over nature, and at the same time reveals the impotence of the false gods of Egypt. 
Here are the first nine plagues listed in order. First was water that would be turned into blood, then frogs, then gnats, flies, disease upon the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And the last one, darkness, was a direct assault on Ra, the sun god of Egypt. Since Pharaoh was considered to be a representative of Ra, uh, this plague demonstrates that even Pharaoh was no match for Almighty God. And although these plagues inflicted severe suffering upon the people, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart against God. Instead of saying, you can go, he tried to make some deals. First, he offered to let the Jews go a very short distance out into the desert have a little party, whatever they needed to do, as long as they would return. Then he offered to let the men go if the women and children stayed behind. Then he let, offered to let them all go if they would only leave their animals behind. Obviously, none of these options were acceptable because God doesn't make deals with pagan rulers. Finally, the moment had come for the tenth and final plague. The Lord told Moses, he said, don't worry, when this one hits Egypt, Pharaoh will be in a hurry to let you go. At midnight on a certain night, the Lord would go through the land of Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt would die in that instant. In, he specifically uh, said that no family would be excluded from Pharaoh's household down to the lowest Egyptian slave. God would even include the firstborn cattle in his judgment. But God would spare the Israelites in order to make a distinction between God's people and Pharaoh's people. Exodus chapter 12 tells the story, and it tells about God's plan to spare the Israelites from the midnight massacre of the firstborn. He would spare his people using the blood of a lamb. When the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the doorpost of each Jewish home, God would see the blood, and he would literally pass over that house. But if God didn't see the blood, he would take the life of the firstborn in judgment. It was the blood of the lamb that saved the people of God that night. Every year since then, for 3,500 years or so, and continuing to the present, the Jews have observed a Passover celebration as a solemn reminder of God's amazing deliverance from Egypt. Even the minutest details of the Passover seem designed to point to Jesus Christ. So today I want to point out 10 of the most notable similarities between the events of the first Passover and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as the ultimate Passover lamb. And here's the first one. The sacrifice had to be a lamb. Exodus 12.3 says that each person was to take a lamb for their own household. It couldn't be a bull or a dove which were sometimes used in other Old Testament sacrifices, God was very particular. It was to be a lamb and only a lamb. Nothing else would do. Over in the New Testament, when John saw Jesus, he cried out, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Secondly, it had to be a male lamb, Exodus 12:5 says that the animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Jesus fulfilled this requirement as well in that he was the son born of the Virgin Mary. Third, it had to be a year-old lamb. This means that the lamb must be in its prime, neither too young or too old. This was also true of Jesus who offered up his own life at the age of 33 in the prime of his life. Fourth, it must be a lamb without blemish. 
The Hebrew text uses a phrase that means without defect. This means that when the Jewish men would carefully inspect their lambs to make sure there was no open sores, no patches of bare skin, no infections, no diseases, no blotches, no blemishes, no sickness of any kind. That prevented someone from offering a lamb that was inferior while keeping the best for themselves. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it picks up this theme when it says that Jesus Christ is the lamb without blemish or defect. Hebrews 4 emphasizes that though Christ was tempted in all points as we are, he was without sin. When Pontius Pilate was examining Jesus, he declared, I find no fault in this man. Even the hostile high priest who could find no just cause to put Jesus to death um, so trumped up false charges against him. See, it may be significant that the Passover lamb was also selected on the 10th day of the month, but not sacrificed until the 14th day. That gave four days to be carefully examined by the household. If Christ entered Jerusalem on Sunday and was crucified on Friday, then we know that there are four intervening days, and it fits the same pattern. During those momentous days, his bitter enemies used every possible tack to discredit Jesus, but each attempt utterly failed. They could not even find the smallest flaw in his character, and thus his worst enemies had to concede that he was the fit sacrifice for the sins of the world. Here's number five. It had to be slain and roasted. Exodus 12 is quite clear on this point. All the lambs were to be slain at the same time and the blood drained from them. Then they were to be roasted and eaten whole, not boiled, not eaten raw, which were pagan customs. Anything left over was to be burned, but the lamb was to be completely consumed. Both the slaying and the roasting picture the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Not only did Jesus die, his death was a complete sacrifice. He died the death of a a criminal hanging on a hated Roman cross. It was not a noble death, such as Socrates, who drank poison, but a humiliating death of a man who was rejected by the world that he came to save. Number six, it had to have no broken bones. Exodus 12:46 specifies that when animals were chosen for the yearly Passover sacrifice, none of the bones were to be broken. Now, in the case of Jesus... It was the custom of the Romans to break the legs of those who who were being crucified in order to hasten their death. But John 19 tells us that the Roman soldiers did not break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. And then verse 36 points out that this happened to fulfill the scripture that says not one of his bones would be broken. Number seven, the sacrifice had to be offered between the evenings. This unusual phrase is a literal translation of a Hebrew phrase found in Exodus 12, 6. And although some translations say the offerings were to be made at twilight, the words literally mean between the evenings, which in Jewish thought was between about 3 and 5 p.m. The New Testament tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, meaning about 9 a.m. in the morning. The Jews recorded time in 24-hour periods beginning at 6 a.m. Matthew 26 tells us that there was darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, which was about 12 noon to 3 p.m. Shortly thereafter, Jesus uttered his final words and died. His body was taken down from the cross before sundown, so Jesus died between the evenings. Between 3 and 5 p.m. at the exact hour, the Passover lambs were being sacrificed throughout Israel. 
Number eight, the sacrifice had to be made by all the people. Exodus 12 stresses that lambs must be offered for every man, for every family in Israel, and for all the lambs must be slaughtered at precisely the same time. Thus the lamb represented the total participation of the nation in this sacrifice. By the same token, Christ was sacrificed. He was crucified by the Romans on behalf of the Jews. Everyone participated in his death. His death was made as a sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. What many lambs did for many people, Jesus, the Lamb of God, did for all people. Number nine, the blood must be sprinkled. Again, Exodus is very specific in describing the ritual. Once a lamb had been slaughtered and the blood drained, the father must take a bunch of hyssop, which was a kind of leafy bush, and dip it in the blood and then put some of the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe of the house. The blood would be a sign that the family had sacrificed a lamb as the Lord had commanded. Verse 13 of Exodus 12 says, The blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this picture is not the death of Christ, but our application of his death to our hearts by faith. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 speaks of when it talks about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. The lamb alone could not save an Israelite. Not even a dead lamb could save. Not even the blood in the basin could save. Only the blood sprinkled on the doorpost could spare the people from this terrible judgment by God. Think of it this way. Jesus Christ is our only hope of salvation. He is God's lamb that's been offered for the sin of the world. However, Jesus' blood saves only when it's been taken by faith. For those who reject the sacrifice, even the Lamb of God cannot save them. The Israelites might have done many wise things and taken advantage of many preventatives against the destruction of the death angel, but if, it had not, if they had not sprinkled the blood upon the doorposts, they would have perished along with the Egyptians. Likewise, we may strive to do many things to help our condition as a sinner, but the cross of Christ is our only real protection. And then the last one, the meat had to be fully consumed in the sacrifice. Not only was the blood shed and the meat roasted, but the family was to eat the meal together with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, a reminder of their harsh days in Egypt. They were not allowed to keep the meat for later use. Any part not eating, not eaten, had to be burned. Thus, the Israelites signified their complete participation in the death of the lamb. His life was taken, his blood was shed, the blood applied, the meat roasted, the meat consumed. Through these measures, the Jews were reminded that their redemption came through the death of a substitute. It was the lamb who died in their place. And eating its meat signified their complete identification with the lamb who had died for them. I think the meaning of that is plain for us. Christ saves us when we connect with him by faith. Jesus said in John 6, I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna. They will live forever. He is speaking about what saving faith is all about. We are to take Christ completely and wholly and absolutely and without qualification. Well, you may have guessed already the rest of the story. 
The death angel stopped at every home in Egypt that night, but every home in Goshen, a suburb of um, where the Israelites lived, was spared. From Pharaoh's palace to the lowest household came loud wailing. Screams pierced the night as family after family discovered their oldest children had perished in the middle of the night. And soon Pharaoh sent word that the Israelites were free to leave. In fact, he begged them to leave before anything else happened. That's why God told the Jews to eat the Passover in haste because he knew, knew that they would be moving on very soon. So this is how God both passed judgment on the false gods of Egypt, at the same time saving his own people through the miraculous deliverance of the blood of the Lamb. In the same way, through the blood of Christ, the great Lamb of God, we are set free from God's wrath and from the penalty of sin. In him and through him and by him, God has delivered his people once and for all. Well, as I come to the end of this story this morning, let me offer from this ancient text uh, four life lessons that I think apply to those who believe in Jesus Christ today. And the first one is, Jesus Christ is God's Lamb. He is the only person who meets all the qualifications. He fulfills every detail of the Old Testament picture. No other person in the Bible meets these requirements. But that explains an important part of the Christmas story. A week or so after Jesus' birth, when the old priest in the temple, Simeon, took baby Jesus in his arms and blessed him, he said that Jesus would be the cause of the rising and falling of many in Israel, thus indicating that some would follow him and others would bitterly oppose him. And then he added a special word for Mary. He said, as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. This was an early reference to the death that Jesus would die. From the very beginning, Jesus was singled out as God's lamb. He was born to give his life for others. And although Mary could not then know all the details from the earliest days, she knew that suffering would be somewhere in his path of life. That's why many of the great artists who have painted Mary in the Christ child have portrayed her with a sense of sorrow and heaviness in her face. Since the lamb must die in order for the blood to save, Jesus would have to die and his blood be shed. That's the fate and the appointed destiny of the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Secondly, there's no salvation without sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. A living lamb may be cute and cuddly, but it saves no one. And in the story of the last plague, unless the lamb died, its blood was no good. In God's economy, only shed blood can forgive sin. As the great lamb of God, Jesus must go to the cross in order to save the world. And three, even Jesus cannot save us without faith. You, you might be thinking to yourself, this is really an absurd story, this whole thing. But I assure you, it is true. Suppose an Israelite had, uh, had refused to sacrifice a lamb. Their firstborn would have died that night. Being a Jew could not save a family on that fateful night. Because it's not national origin that matters to God, but it is faith in God's appointed way of salvation. Same is true for us today. We aren't saved by coming to Redeemer Church. It's wonderful that you're here, but it doesn't ultimately matter for our salvation. When God looks down, the only thing that matters to him is that he sees the blood of the lamb applied 
to the doorposts of our heart. Have you received God's gift by faith today? And then lastly, if we, if, we, if we refuse God's lamb, there is no other plan of salvation. Consider a scenario. Consider what might have happened that night in Egypt. Two men that afternoon uh, were talking, one a good moral Egyptian, the other an immoral, dishonest Israelite. Somehow these two men have become friends despite their cultural differences. The Egyptian enjoys the friendship of the Israelite even if he doesn't understand his strange religion. And the Israelite has seen many advantages to uh, for forging a relationship with a man from Egypt. So they're chatting together one day and the Israelite's describing in some detail his plans to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and only he sees really no purpose in this strange thing. Why should he waste a perfectly good lamb, his best one, on some useless endeavor? The Egyptian agrees, but wonders all the while about the many terrible plagues that have fallen his people. They go their separate ways, promising to chat the next morning, but that conversation never takes place. Later that afternoon, the Israelite keeps putting off killing his best lamb, and his wife begins to beg him, sweetheart, it's time, don't be too late. When the appointed hour comes, he finally does it. He kills the lamb, but not without, you know, complaining a little no enthusiasm in what he's doing. He delays till the last moment, putting the blood on the doorpost. 10.30 comes around that evening, 11 o'clock. The wife is beginning to get fearful that her husband is delaying too long. Their four children, including their firstborn, uh, who looks so much like his father, are gathered around the table. It's 11.30. The man is still delaying. It's 11.45, he's not done it yet. His wife now begins to weep before him and she says, how can you risk the life of your oldest son like this? So grudgingly, he gets up and he takes the hyssop and he applies the blood to the doorpost. And his wife is satisfied because she knows her family will be safe. Midnight comes and goes and nothing happens. Not a sound is heard, not even a barking dog in the neighborhood, but in Egypt... There is screaming and shrieks and women crying and fathers shouting and there's death everywhere. Firstborn dying in their sleep, firstborn cattle dead in their stalls, not a family is left untouched. In the home of the good and moral Egyptian man, there is sudden terror and then wailing. Their 15-year-old, the heir to the family business, their hope of the future, they suddenly has stopped breathing. He dies so suddenly they didn't even have time to say goodbye. Why? Because there's no blood on the door. But what if the Egyptian had put blood on his door and the Israelite had not? The roles would have been reversed because it was the blood of the lamb that made the difference. And even today, for those who reject the sacrifice of God's own perfect lamb, God has no other plan of salvation. We need a lamb. It must meet all the requirements laid out by God in, the, in Exodus 12, and the lamb must die, and we must apply the sacrifice to the doorposts of our heart. That is, we must trust in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And you may be asking today, where do we find such a lamb? And the answer is, we look to the cross. We gaze upon the Son of God. The Scripture says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb we need. 
He is God's lamb for our sin. But the choice is ours whether or not we receive the gift. Whether we receive it or we reject it. John 1.12 tells us to all who believed him and accept him, Christ gave the right to become children of God. But it's up to us. I invite you today to receive him by faith.